0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. Now, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, as we arrive at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the little spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, now this is a fun one this week. I have Richard Allen Wagner. Now, you might remember him from the Winchester Mystery House episode. So we're going to kind of come full circle. We actually have two new episodes. So this one is going to be continuing his argument about Sir Francis Bacon and that he, in fact, was the man we know of as William Shakespeare. That is what we are going to dedicate this hour to. Now, if you go onto my website, fascinatingnouns.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter, hint, hint, We are going to have another episode about Oak Island, which is going to kind of give us a a new perspective on Oak Island. We learned about Oak Island last week, an incredible interview with Rick Lagina and David Blankenship who are currently searching for treasure on Oak Island. Well, Richard is going to talk to me about the Masonic symbolism and what could possibly be hidden on Oak Island. On top of that, he's going to explain the connection to Sir Francis Bacon and Oak Island, and that leads us full circle back to the Winchester Mystery House, where it turns out that Sarah Winchester and the Mystery House were exactly the mystery that led Richard down the path to investigate the great Sir Francis Bacon. So check that out on the website. Uh, if you want to get all kinds of updates, check out the Twitter feed, at Daniel J. Glenn. Now, this and many of my other episodes utilize pictures. I can't show you pictures over the radio, which is essentially what this is. So go to pinterest.com backslash fascinating noun singular, and you are going to find all kinds of visual accessories for this week's episode. And if you want to check it out on Facebook, facebook.com backslash fascinating nouns. All right, so we have a lot to cover this week, so let's just jump right into it with Richard Allen Wagner. Thank you so much for being here today, Richard. My pleasure. Now this is the second time you are my first second time guest on the program. And I think it's appropriate because the way this kind of worked out is pretty cool, because the first time you were on, we talked about the Winchester uh, Mystery House and Sarah Winchester. Mm -hmm. And in your studies, that is actually what led you down the path to Sir Francis Bacon, am I correct? Correct. So we're kind of doing this kind of how, uh, cause today we're gonna go into Sir Francis Bacon and the connection with William Shakespeare. And as a bonus, we're gonna talk about Sir Francis uh, Bacon's connection to Oak Island and tie it together almost in the style of Sir Francis Bacon where we kinda connect all the dots and we're gonna finish up before the end of the day.
1: That's an idea.
0: I'm pretty excited about it. So let's, let's dig right into this. Um, now, uh, first of all, I'm going to tell people who are listening, we're going to get into a lot of material here. I would recommend reading. You actually offer for free on your website, The Truth About Shakespeare, uh, an, an electronic version of your of your book, The Lost Secret of William Shakespeare, correct? Correct. It's a great book. Uh, I, I plowed through about 120 pages. Uh, in one night, and you know, trying to trying to get caught up on the story, there's a lot to it, and your book reads so well. I mean, it's it's a really easy read. I've never done anything like I've never read that much in one night before. As embarrassed as I am to admit that, <laughs> um, so let's uh, so let's let's get right into this. So you make the argument that Sir Francis Bacon, who 99% of the people listening have never heard of, is actually William Shakespeare.
1: Well. Uh in a, in a sense, yes. Uh, he ultimately ended up uh, being sort of the head of the choir. In other words, he was, he functioned much like the Renaissance masters did. Uh, basically, he was putting together an enterprise. He had a lot of people working for him and working with him. Uh, these he called his good pens. These were people who were writers, and uh, and they there is a. We don't know exactly who was all was in the group. We do know that there are quite a few people. These could have included people like Walter Raleigh, and possibly Ben Johnson. Certainly, uh, Anthony Bacon, Francis Bacon's brother, was involved. Uh, a lot of a lot of people who, uh, uh, perhaps, Philip Sidney, the Earl of Essex, uh, even Mary Sidney. Herbert, who was the Countess of Pembroke, a lot of different people were very likely involved in this, what we call the Shakespeare enterprise or the Shakespeare circle. So there were a lot of people assisting Bacon in this, but in essence, he was putting the whole thing together in the end, much like a Renaissance master would. So he was essentially the editor-in-chief.
0: Of the Shakespeare Circle. True. Sure. Now let's let's go to the let's back it up a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning. Who is Sir Francis Bacon?
1: Well, before we get into that, why don't we go even further back? Okay. And uh, in the know, beginning,
0: God created the heavens and the earth. No, That's not that far. Back. Not that far. Okay.
1: But uh, far enough back where we take on the most crucial bit of information here, and that is how in the world did the myth of Shakespeare come to be? I mean, what happened? If if he wasn't the author, then who was? And of course, I'm saying it was Bacon. But how did it come to be that way? What makes it that way? And why wasn't Shakespeare Shakespeare? The man that we've all been told was Shakespeare. Why is that not the case? How mm-hmm. can that be? How can Shakespeare not be Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Okay? Great question. So in other words, uh, let's, let's go back to where where it should start, which is actually with the man we've been told was Shakespeare when when he died. And that goes back to the date of April twenty third, 1616. The place is Stratford, England. Historically speaking, England's most celebrated author has died. His name, we were told, is William Shakespeare. Now think on that. England, at that point, must be in mourning. The outpouring of grief and sympathy and praise must be enormous. Heads of state, as well as prominent literary figures, they must be dipping their pens in ink to pay tribute to the greatest writer of the English language. A torrent of poems and elegies for Shakespeare must be soaring to fever pitch. I mean, you know, Westminster Abbey must be preparing a special place for this, the burial of, of this great man. Letters and comments about his passing must be circulating in great abundance, and yet, There's nothing. There's just a deafening silence. None of England's great authors before or since have ever been so thoroughly ignored. No one, not even Kane James, who was a big Shakespeare fan, nor any contemporary poet or playwright, or anyone else having anything to say, none of them have anything to say, not not anyone. I mean, the passing of Shakespeare is a non-event. It's a complete vacuum. Why and how can that be? I mean, nothing happened. Something's just not right, and something doesn't make sense. And some, We have to ask the question, is there something that we're missing? And when we back up and we check it out, we find that for a start, one thing that most people have missed is the fact that the man from Stratford, who we've all been told was Shakespeare, didn't go by the name Shakespeare. His name, as he called it, was Spur, spelled S-H-K-S-P-E-R-E or in some cases, Shakespeare, without an E on the end. So, the Stratford man never represented his name as Shakespeare, even in cases when it could have been advantageous for him to do so, as was the case with his having difficulty with his coat of arms. I mean, that was a case where that would have been advantageous to make use of that name, but he didn't do that. Even on his will, he still crudely scrawled the name Shakespeare, at first, it might seem like splitting hairs, but but there is a world of difference between Shakespeare and Shakespeare, especially when you consider that on many occasions in the publication of Shakespearean works, from the beginning to the end, the name was given as Shake-Spear. That's an interesting way of looking at it, but, and a lot of people I know aren't aware that it actually worked out that way. But originally, in the early phases of uh, the Shakespearean works coming out. It was either done anonymously or when the name did start to appear, it always had that hyphen. And even throughout the works, throughout their history in the, the coming years, occasionally it was done as a complete name, Shakespeare, or as Shakespeare with a hyphen in the middle. Two completely different words. So Shakespeare Strafford Stratford never used a hyphen in his name. He had no reason to. Which brings up another important question. What purpose did the hyphenated version of Shakespeare, uh, what would that serve? And the only credible answer is the name actually a pseudonym in which the words shake and spear are combined. So as we shall see later, the combination of the words shake and spear re-signify really nom de plume. Okay, the Strafford man's name wasn't exactly Shakespeare. So what? Now, let's go back to the, his death in Stratford. What did he leave behind? And the answer to that is best, an, we, we get a better answer to that when we take a look at his will. Now that's interesting because most wills left by most commoners at that time uh, were only one page long. In his case, he left behind a three-page will. But let's look at what he put in there or more precisely what he didn't put in there. In his last will and testament, uh, what does it say? He says, well, aside from dispensation of his real estate holdings and his monetary gifts to his family and friends, the will provides for his second best bed to go to his wife and various common household items and to other members of his family. That's basically it. In all those three pages, I mean, what's most important about the whole thing is that it makes no mention of anything of a literary nature. Uh, for for example, there's no mention of books whatsoever. I mean, that's really disturbing. We should rightfully expect that William Shakespeare to have owned at least a personal collection of books. I mean, in his time, books were extremely valuable. But there was there were no public libraries. Only people who could afford books really had them. And yet, Shakespeare of Stratford died a wealthy man, wealthy enough to have owned an impressive library of his own, and yet there is no mention of books whatsoever. Not in the will, not anywhere. Not even a Bible is mentioned. Now how could the greatest author in the English language not possess a single book? But it gets even stranger. The will makes no mention of manuscripts or plays or poems, nor diaries or notebooks or letters, Absolutely nothing of a literary or intellectual nature is mentioned, including the fact that nothing is said about the testator having been a writer of anything. Now how can the greatest English author not leave his literary legacy to his heirs or friends? Considering that there are at least 16 plays not yet published, wouldn't they be among the most important items to be mentioned in his will? Strange provision of gold ring is to be given to, the, to three of Shakespeare's fellow stage actors. And he, we do know that he appears to have been at least that, a stage actor, not a big one. And the three people that uh, he had been in a theater group called the King's Men with were Richard Burbage, John Heminge, and Henry Condell. Now, he laid, made a provision in the will to provide for three gold rings to be made for these three individuals. Uh, the only ones who actually uh, received the funds for that were Heminge and Condell. And yet, uh, at that time, neither Heminge or Condell turned around to eulogize the man who had included him in their, them in his will. They said absolutely nothing about him. It wasn't until seven years later uh, that something would be said. That's a long time for them to wait. They weren't getting any younger. So, and and another thing that's interesting about that is that the provision for Hamish and Condell appears to have been something that was tacked on as an afterthought to the will. So it is indeed something rather strange in the whole process. I mean, what else are we missing here?
0: Well, there's one other thing you did forget to mention that I think is important. You said that he never wrote a letter. There were never any letters found of his, right? right? So the greatest writer in the English language, he couldn't find a letter that he wrote.
1: Exactly. Not so much as a single letter. And uh, there was only one letter ever known to have been sent to him, and that was a a letter from a law clerk uh, advising him of a legal matter. He was involved in a lot of litigation in his final years but none of it had anything to do with literature. He was a grain merchant, and it all had to do with that, and they're all small claims actions. But the interesting thing is not only did he not write any letters to anyone, people didn't write letters to him, which is rather telling because what would you make of that? I mean, you know, it kind of indicates people most likely knew he couldn't read.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean that's yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, you were also mentioned that he he was illiterate, and his family was illiterate. I mean, he came from a place where their education wasn't readily available or was extremely expensive.
1: True, uh, there was a grammar school known to have existed at that time, but there, again, there's no record that he ever attended school of any of any sort. There's no record that he ever attended that grammar school or university or any school whatsoever. And of course, what you look at is the rest of the record, and that is of course. His parents, both of his parents were illiterate. they made their they made their signature with a not with a signature but with a, an X. And here's what's most telling and that is his children, none of his children were literate. They too like his parents made sign with an X and likewise his grandchildren were illiterate. Now you have to ask a question how does that work? I mean he's arguably the only, writer in English history whose children were illiterate how can the greatest writer in in the English language have illiterate children and grandchildren it just doesn't add up
0: Uh, one of the questions since we're talking about it are any of his descendants alive today
1: Uh, that's a good question Uh, it would appear that there are some descendants Hmm. it would appear that there are some
0: the same last name? Is it Jack Spurs? Has it been changed? as it been It's a good question. We should look that up. We should look that up. We'll get back to you on that.
1: The bottom line there is there's no indication that he was ever educated. And, of course, it would certainly explain a lot of things. It would explain why, why his, the rest of his family was illiterate. It would explain why he never wrote so much as a single letter. It would also explain the strange six signatures that he apparently did scrawl. These were again on legal documents. Three of the existing signatures that belonging to him were put on his will, on th- the three pages of his will. The other three were on other legal documents. But aside from these very almost in- unintelligible signatures, very wobbly signatures, uh, there's no indication that the man ever wrote anything else aside, aside from these almost illegible signatures. And you've taken a look at them. I'm going to have them you on the s- website, too. Yeah, you see what they look like. Uh, they, it looks as if possibly uh, his hand had been guided to make the signature. Certainly no, no, none of those two signatures are alike. As you can see, they, uh, they're they extremely shaky. Uh, it appears as if the, the person behind the pen wasn't accustomed to holding a pen or, or using a pen. And his signatures there certainly tend to tell us a lot about him. It certainly indicates this man wasn't—it it, it adds a lot of credibility to the idea that the man just simply wasn't literate.
0: Well, so if this—I mean, you're making a good argument that, that this guy, William Shakespeare, was not William Shakespeare. Right. But then—so why does that, um, you know, why does that myth persist, I mean, you make a good argument in the book about the, the man who shot Liberty Valance. I mean, is is what's the parallel there?
1: Well, the parallel is this, that uh, we have to, what we have is a, a big mystery, a mystery shrouded by uh, by other mysteries. Uh, that, you know, we, we look at it and we say, well, wait a minute, uh, there must be something more, and, and there isn't. I mean, there is no paper trail testifying to Shakespeare's authorship of anything. In fact, uh, he never once made any suggestion that he was a writer, and he never claimed to be Shakespeare. That's another important thing. I mean, there is no evidence to back any of those claims up. So it gets down to, well, who in the world is making the claim then that he was Shakespeare? And the answer is that the during his time, no one did make that claim. Uh, it wasn't until many many years later, decades and decades later, that anyone uh, even bothered to even go to Stratford to even look for him. Uh, It seemed to be rather well known during his time that he wasn't Shakespeare. Okay? Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is really shrouded in a big mystery. Now, in 1623, uh, there are at least 16... Uh, plays that had not yet been published and all of the Shakespeare plays were republished and all those that had not previously been published in quarto now for the first time are published in the folio and interestingly enough many uh, changes had been made to earlier plays in other words plays that had er in earlier years had been uh, Published in quarto version, and had undergone a number of different publications up until 1623. Uh, had undergone tremendous changes by the time the folio came out. So, in other words, for example, um, you know, uh, certain plays had rather substantial changes. I'll I'll, I'll reiterate them from uh, from my notes here. Let's have a look here. 200, for example, 200 new lines had been added to Henry V that weren't there before in earlier publications. Uh, 193 lines had been added to Richard III. 108 lines had been added to The Mary Wives of Windsor. Uh, 100, another, uh, 160 lines had been added to Othello. We have an interesting situation here with Othello because... Up until 1621, there in fact was no play called Othello. Actually, that play had been, during the earlier years, been known as The Moor of Venice. And the name Othello wasn't yet in use. It wasn't in use until 1621. So who was the Moor of Venice? Well, actually, no name was given to the original Moor. He was just referred to as the Moorish Captain. The only person in that play up to that point, up to 1621, who actually had a name was the Moorish Moorish Captain's wife, Desdemona. And of course, in the folio version, later when that was changed, uh, then now you have suddenly a name Othello shows up and the name Iago shows up for uh, the Captain's uh, second-in-command. Okay? Before that, you just had the captain and you had his ensign. Now where did all that come from? Actually the originally the the play The Moor of Venice uh, owed its existence to a man by the name of Giovanni Battista Giraldi. He later took on the name of Cynthio. And so Cynthio came up with uh, way back in the fifteen fifties, Cynthio came up with us was an Italian writer who had this story called Un Capitano Moro. And again, the, originally, the original thing was in Italian. You had to be able to read Italian in order to be able to adapt uh, Cynthia's play to become the the more of Venice. And of course, again, the question is, how in the world would Shakespeare of Stratford have learned all these different languages? If he never went to school, how could he... A, know Latin. How could he know Greek? Because a great many of the plays, a lot of the material in the plays, had to have been borrowed, were borrowed extensively from Latin, from Roman ancient Roman texts, from certain Roman authors, from certain Greek authors. I mean, it's a, it's a rather impressive list of different people that the author of the Shakespearean works borrows very heavily from. But in order to do that, he had to have been able to read Latin, you had to have been able to read Greek. You had been able to read in other languages like French, Italian, Spanish. Where does he get all this knowledge? Where'd that derive from? If he doesn't go to school, how does he learn all these languages? In addition to all that, there's a lot of other qualifications that are important because clearly the author of the Shakespearean works had to have knowledge of a lot of things, had extensive knowledge of philosophy, knowledge of Science, knowledge of of botany, knowledge of falconry, knowledge of court life and how and manners and how all these things worked. I mean, you couldn't just guess around about these things. There are many things that are extremely accurate, very much right on the money, and go into great detail in the, throughout the plays, throughout the works. How does he have all this knowledge? In addition to that, it's very clear that the author of the works certainly traveled abroad because there are many. Very detailed, are very fine details that show up in, throughout the works uh, of foreign places, of the geography, of the customs of the people in those places. Uh, very, so detailed that you pretty much had to have been there in order to have known about so many details. For example, uh, in Romeo and Juliet, uh, you've, this, this takes place in Verona for the most part. And there are allusions to certain things there. For example, there's allusion to the sycamore trees. And you have to ask, how does he know about the sycamore trees? There's allusions to certain. There are three different allusions throughout the play to uh, a St. Peter's church. And again, how does he know about this? Later on, uh, there, there would be a counter argument from uh, the Orthodox. Uh, Stratfordians who insisted, oh no, he he didn't, they they recognized that he never left the English shores, he never went abroad. And they said, well, you know, he didn't actually have to go abroad to know about these things. In fact, uh, he didn't even have to get things right. He most likely got things wrong and made a lot of mistakes about foreign places, especially in Italy. And so they came up with arguments having to do with, well, he couldn't know about certain things. And he, when he talks about, for example, uh, certain cities being connected by waterways or by a water route, they're pointing out that there was no such thing. And in fact, it wasn't until recently, with Richard Rowe's book, Richard Rowe was a guy who actually went to Italy, spent decades there researching all this to see what did add up, what didn't. And Richard Rowe found out that, in fact, everything that was alleged to have been just made up by a Stratford man, who they say is Shakespeare, were, were actually not made up. They actually were they actually were specific details that really did exist. So whereas uh, there is this idea that he was just using his imagination to come up with all these things wasn't true. These in fact wherever he's talking about specific details like a sycamores and like different names of churches and like waterways connecting Certain city-states in Italy, they in fact really did exist. Just that we didn't know about them until Richard Rowe actually went over there and researched it. No one else before him had ever gone over there and ever checked it out. See what I'm saying?
0: I do see what you're saying. Um, well, so so like you made a really good argument that this isn't the right guy. So who is the guy? I mean, I'm looking at a picture of him. Like, where did the picture come from? Like, you know, the name Shakespeare, you make an argument that Shakespeare is actually has very significant meaning as well uh, related to the god goddess Athena. Um, you know, how does all this stuff tie into who you think it is?
1: Okay. Uh, again, I'm the reason why ba- Bacon is so compelling for all the reasons in here is that the first thing is that he meets all the criteria for writing the works. He's not alone, there are others who met the criteria as well. For example, the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, met all the criteria pretty much. Another cri- thing that one had to be in order to write these works the way they were, was you had to have, a, it's pretty clear that the author of the works had to have a pretty thorough understanding of law, this, to the point where he had to have been very likely a practicing lawyer. Or judge, and in Bacon's case that was that was true. He was a practicing judge. So Bacon did have Bacon had the more than had the ability and the education to do all these things. Bacon was fluent in all the all the languages that show up throughout the works. Bacon had traveled abroad uh, throughout Europe. Bacon had all the all these things that were very essential. Uh, there's more to all this too that will point to him specifically as having that connection. One of the things that's interesting when you look at different authors or different possible people who could meet the criteria, such as Oxford, such as Christopher Marlowe, is that they had the background, but yet there's no concrete evidence, nothing substantial to back up the idea that any of those people other than Bacon could possibly have done that. I mean, we need to go more than just guessing here. We need to go by the trail of evidence. What does the evidence say? And in Bacon's case, he's the only one who really has tangible, hard evidence that points to him. And no one else has that. Everyone else has conjecture. And that's exactly what happened with the man from Stratford. Shaq Spur uh, ended up becoming used by Bacon and his circle as a front, a front man. And Bacon felt that important to, to keep his identity secret, to use anonymity in the whole thing. And I'll get into that. The reason why he did that was uh, from his childhood on, Bacon was involved in uh, the Rosicrucian movement in Europe. Uh, and what that means is that he uh, was involved in a movement whereby uh, he was studying Uh, arcane philosophy. He got much of this from his mentor, John Dee. And at an early age, he's in a group called uh, the Knights of the Helmet. And the Knights of the Helmet were so named because of the goddess Pallas Athena, who was their adopted muse. Goddess Pallas Athena was the Greek god of wisdom or goddess of wisdom. And uh, she was known as the shaker of the spear, the spear shaker. And when you look at statues of Pallas Athena, you see her wearing her helmet with a visor, and she's holding a spear. And in most cases, you see her stamping out the serpent of ignorance. And Bacon took to that. Bacon adopted Pallas Athena very early as his muse. At the age of 15, he wrote a letter to his uncle, Burley, uh, who was William Cecil. Queen Elizabeth's head of, uh, uh, her secretary of state at that time. And Bacon said in the letter, I claim all knowledge to be my my province. And he meant it too. Bacon was a child prodigy. He was a genius. And at that early age, at 16, he actually went abroad over to the continent. And the French took took to him and they called him, uh, the, the jeweled mine or the man who knows everything. But he adopts Pallas Athena as his adopted muse. But one of the key th- elements with Pallas Athena is the element of concealment and visibility, and that's exactly what her helmet and visor represented, concealment and invisibility. And at a very early time, Bacon adopts this idea of writing things anonymously, he, he did at one point uh, entertain the idea uh, of writing all of his philosophy and all of his uh, prose works anonymously, but he did change his mind on that. But when it came to poetry and poesy, as it was called, or writing plays, any of that, uh, it was essential for him to, he decided to write all that anonymously. It was also advantageous from the standpoint that in those days, it was not necessarily a good idea to use one's own name because it could be used against you politically. But at any rate, the primary motive for him was that he felt it was a good idea to be anonymous primarily because of his association with Pallas Athena. That was really the fundamental core idea behind it.
0: Let's let's give a little background on, on Francis Bacon because he is quite in his own right an extremely compelling historical figure, and I want people out there, the 99% of people who have no idea who he is, to be as intrigued by him as I am.
1: Okay, Bacon was born in 16, uh, I mean 1564, uh, uh, and here's where things get interest, really interesting, rather compelling. Bacon was, in fact, brace yourselves, he was, in fact, the the first son of Queen Elizabeth I. Yes, I know. She lived to be 70 years old. We've been told she lived her whole life as a virgin. The she virgin was a virgin queen. queen. Mm-hmm. But yet, she spent 70 years of her life, and she never ever, ever uh, got married. She never had children. Actually, she did, but she did so secretly. And Bacon was her first child. Now, uh, that's for a different... Getting into that further, that's getting into another episode altogether. But long story short, what happened was when Bacon was born in uh, 1564, he was given over to Elizabeth's uh, to two of Elizabeth's members of court. That was Sir Nicholas Bacon, who was her uh, Lord Keeper of the Seal, and also her primary lady in waiting, who was Lady Anne Bacon, so Bacon was given over; he, to, he was given over to the Bacon's to raise as their own, which they did, and they brought him up as a foster child. And later on, it would be interesting that later on in later years, Lady Anne would write a letter about tr- not tr- wanting to treat him as a ward in a letter. Uh, and of course, interestingly enough, uh, the Bacon's never included Francis in their family tree. Or in their will. Yes, that's true. And Nicholas Bacon, assuming that Queen Elizabeth would provide for him, didn't bother to provide for Francis in his will either.
0: Now, and it's also this connection, I think, that allows Francis Bacon to have sort of, you know, while not an official son of the Queen. She is looking out for him, which allows him to have significant financial uh, advantages and political advantages and social advantages that give him the education that he needs to be able to do everything that he did, correct?
1: Right, absolutely. She was very concerned about his education, his upbringing, which is no doubt why she chose the Bacons, who were arguably the, the most uh, gifted and certainly the most educated members of her court. So they were knowledgeable in Latin and Greek— they were knowledgeable in all the Romance languages. They they knew, they were fluent in French and Italian and Spanish. They they brought young Francis up that way. They taught him all the languages. Uh, they taught him everything he needed to know at an early age. And of course, later on, when he went on to uh, Trinity College at Cambridge, uh, that became very handy. And in very, very quick order, he mastered all their curriculum. And in essence, uh, was in a position to actually turn around and teach his teachers. So at an early age, uh, he leaves Trinity College. Uh, He goes over to uh, study at Gray's Inn, which is where you study for, where you study to become, go into a career for law. And that's what he did, he studied law at Gray's Inn. At the age of 16, Elizabeth saw him off on his first voyage over to the continent. People were no doubt rather confused as to why he was kissing her ring as she sees him off to that voyage to go to France. But at age 16, he goes over to France. And the French called him the jeweled mine or the man who knows everything. So he spent a number of years over on the continent traveling around. And then when Sir Nicholas Bacon died, while he was over there, he had to come back. And that sort of cut his stay over abroad rather short. So he comes back to England, and that's when he starts writing. He also had uh, his his elder foster brother, Anthony Bacon, was his chief collaborator, collaborator up until 1601, when Anthony Bacon died. But in the earlier stages of the writing, Anthony Bacon was certainly involved in it up to his eyeballs. Uh, both the Bacon brothers were also involved in uh, Queen Elizabeth's Secret Service. So, whenever people went abroad, uh, they also served the dual purpose of spying in addition to that. And they would report either to Francis Walsingham or to her Secretary of State, Lord Burley, who also was Bacon's uncle by virtue of the fact that his mother. Or his foster mother, Lady Anne Bacon, was re, was related uh, was a sister of Burley's wife, uh, Mildred, and so here you have a situation where Bacon is privy to the to the, arguably one of the largest libraries in Europe at that time, which belonged to Burley, which certainly aided him in his, his education. He also had access to Doctor John Dee's. Uh, Great library which really was regarded as the ultimate library in England at that time so very educated guy and uh, his work
0: and his work as a spy allowed him to create the ciphers and I mean you make a, a point in the book that you know that's the precursor to Morse code and to digital like digital code to speak
1: true uh, they were very much engrossed in ciphers and the use of them that was, uh, that was quite the thing back in those days Uh, He wasn't alone in that, everyone pretty much made use of ciphers, standard ciphers. But Bacon did improve on the old ciphers, Bacon did create his own ciphers, one he called the biliteral cipher. And another one he talked about in his advancement of learning, he called the wheel cipher. Uh, It was some kind of contraption, like a wheel, and it was very complicated and very involved. Uh, We'll get into that later. for those who would say that Bacon as Shakespeare uh, would be, his, the case for him would be based entirely upon ciphers are incorrect. Uh, the ciphers really are the icing to the, on the cake through the whole thing. But the case for Bacon as Shakespeare doesn't rest entirely on ciphers at all. Actually there are, there's hard, tangible evidence that indicates that he was. For example, the Northumberland Manuscript is one of those artifacts that serves as hard, tangible evidence. No, nobody else, not Shakespeare, Stratford, not Edward Oxenford, uh, not Christopher Marlowe, not anyone else, have hard, tangible artifacts to link him with the authorship of Shakespeare. So one of the things you have to look at are those things? Another thing you have to look at is the works themselves. What do the works had to say about Bacon. Uh, what do they? What do they suggest? For example, you can look throughout the works and you can see where his name itself is in there. Uh, there are certain works, for example, where, for, for example, uh, first part of Henry the Fourth. You've got. Uh, allusions to the second carrier comes into the kitchen and he says, out of nowhere, he says, I have a gallon of bacon and two races of ginger. Okay. Why is he saying that? It's interesting. He's saying, I have a gallon of bacon. Of course, he's referring to bacon as meat, but he's, it's also a double entendre. On the following page in that play, you see allusions to bacon fed knaves. Falstaff is is, referring to bacon fed knaves and he then goes on to say make a statement on bacon's on what's he talking about how'd that get in there who on earth other than the bacon brothers ever made that statement who who would say on bacon's on of course that was a motto that was shared by the bacon brothers in their early years on bacon's on why would that be in there later in the play in henry the first part of henry the fourth there's one page where a character by the name of Francis shows up with Prince Henry. And in that one page, Prince Henry says, speaks the, the, the name Francis a total of 22 separate times in so just one single page. Now, nowhere else in the entire Shakespeare canon do you have anything even close to this, where one person's name is continually spoken over and over and over on one page. Yet the, the name Francis is spoken 22 times on one page, and it shows up another 17 times as a stage prompt, making for a total of 39 p- times on one page. That's pretty interesting. Why is that so? Where do, who, who else would have put that there? Certainly not Shakespeare or Stratford. It certainly wouldn't occur to Edward de Vere to put the name Francis on a single page. Why not Edward? Why not William? No, it's Francis. So how does that get there? How does the name Bacon show up in all these different places? There's another place in the Mary Wise of Windsor where there's a, a conversation. There's lots of conversations between Falstaff and Mrs. Quickly. And one place, one place in the Mary Wise of Windsor there's a very fascinating thing that, that takes place. And that is uh, there's a statement that Mrs. Quickly says. She, she, out of thin air, she, she makes a statement. Hang hog is Latin for bacon, I warrant you. Now, what's that doing there? And the reason that gets in there is that actually the term that that business about hang hog is Latin for bacon, I warrant you, is actually alluding to something that happened many years earlier with Sir Nicholas Bacon when he was operating as a judge. And in his apothegms, Francis Bacon writes about an anecdote involving Sir Nicholas, which Sir Nicholas is, as a judge, is passing judgment on a man by the name of Hogg. And the man named named Hogg says, oh, you can't hang me because we're kindred. My name is Hogg and yours is Bacon. And Sir Nicholas answers back, ah, but Bacon, you cannot be Bacon unless you be well hanged. And the whole point of that is that in Latin, Hang hog is re, Latin for, for bacon. So that's where that, that little business of Mrs. Quickly in there to Falstaff. Hang hog is Latin for bacon, I warrant you. That's how that gets in there. Who else is going to put that in there but bacon himself? Not De Vere, not Shakespeare of Stratford. No one else is going to put that in there except bacon. But it gets even better. Because there are lots of other things like that that you find throughout the works. For example, in Love's Labor Lost, here's a very interesting thing. When young Bacon goes over to France, he spends uh, a good deal of time living in the court of Henri III of Navarre. It's a region of France at that time. And in the court of Navarre, uh, later on this becomes the setting for uh, a Shakespearean play, an early one called Love's Labor's Lost. Now Love's Labor's Lost was actually published in 1597. However, when the Bacon Brothers were abroad, uh, they both stayed at Navarre. Anthony actually stayed at Navarre for eight years. Interestingly enough, when Anthony came back from the continent in 1592, he moved in with Brother Francis at Gray's End. And sure enough, some years later, in 1597, the play, Loves, Labor, is Lost, is actually published. And what happens in that? Well, a lot of things happen. Uh, one of which is, of course, it's taking place at Navarre. But another thing that, that shows, certain other things show up. For example, in throughout the play, you have these four courtiers. Uh, they're named, respectively, Biron, uh, Longaville, Dumaine, and Boyer. Interestingly enough, when Anthony Bacon comes back from the continent in 1592, his sheikh, his passport, has four signatures written in it. And who are the signatures belong to? They belong to a person by the name of Barone, another person by the name of Longaville, another person by the name of Dumaine, and another person by the name of Boyes. Very interesting. So what happens is that the name Barone, Originally, as it appears in Anthony Bacon's passport, it's spelled B-I-R-O-N, the French version of it. Bacon turns around, and he anglicizes it and spells it B-E-R-O-W-N-E, Baron. Longueville stays the way it is. Dumain has an E added to the end of it. And Boyesse becomes Boyer. But you can see very clearly, you have to ask the question, how do these names end up in Love's Labor's Lost if the collaborating Bacon brothers don't put them there? I mean, who else is going to do that? Shakespeare, Stratford? I don't think so. Edward de Vere? I don't think so. Where would they get them? How would they know about them? I mean, the names in Anthony Bacon's passport are very crucial. I mean, this is a crucial piece of hard evidence. This is an artifact we're talking about. And Anthony Bacon's passport uh, can be found in the British Museum. That's where scholars have found it and found those signatures. And it it doesn't stop there. Then you go on to this other artifact known as uh, Bacon's promise of formularies and elegancies. That was the title he gave to it. The promise actually, which means storehouse in Latin. Bacon's promise was his own personal notebook that he kept for many, many years while he was writing. And when certain ideas would, would come to him or certain uh, phrases uh, would would enter his mind, he would write them down. I know about this because I do this, much the same thing as a writer myself. Uh, I, I write things down in, in a notebook. And Bacon did the same thing, most writers do. But as Bacon would write, would, would think of certain phrases and catchy things to say, to write down later on, he would write them in his notebook. And he wrote, he made more than 200 entries in the promise. Many of those entries ended up in the pages of Shakespeare. And there's no better explanation as to how they got there than clearly Bacon had to have put them there. And I can give you plenty of examples of where those occur, where you find certain phrases in the promise and then you find them in the pages of Shakespeare. Another, another artifact is very crucial here which points to Bacon as Shakespeare's, an artifact known as the Northumberland Manuscript. The Northumberland Manuscript actually was a parchment folder that belonged to Bacon. And in that folder, he kept many of his manuscripts to be later uh, sent to the printer to to go to publication. Uh, On the the outside of the, on one side of the cover, you have an inventory of the manuscripts on the inside. Uh, Amongst those, things that are inventoried on the outside are the plays of Shakespearean plays Richard II and Richard III. Now both those plays uh, were published in the mid-1590s. Uh, interestingly enough, the Bacon is keeping all these manuscripts at a rather early time and we, we see evidence that he is also make, experimenting with the name Shakespeare Remember the gods, palace, Athena, Shakespeare, and so he's. You, as you see on the on the on the inventory page of the Northumberland Manuscript, you see the name Shakespeare written over and over and over in different forms, as if it's being experimented with. Uh, as you, you look at it, you see uh, it's partially written as like kind of like Shaks, and and you see a shack, you see a, and then you see Shakespeare. And so you can see how he ends up hi- at first hyphenating it, Shakespeare, and you then you see the name Francis Bacon written all over it. This is the only Elizabethan document ever found in which any authors other than Shakespeare is coupled with another contemporary uh, author. So all all over that you have the names Francis Bacon and the name Sh- William Shakespeare being written together. In fact, in one case you actually see the name by Francis William Shakespeare. You see that? hmm
0: Yeah, I have a, I'm looking at it right now. I'm gonna have this up on the website. It's fascinating. I mean, this is this is a really compelling piece of evidence. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's because I'm looking at it. There's Shake William Shakespeare at the bottom in several different forms, obviously trying to fit the ciphers that he was you know, that he had created, trying to make the, the numbers work, which he was obsessed with, uh, trying to find a, a system that, I mean, he see there's two F's in Francis. I'm sure that the number system needed to work there. It's really am- amazing.
1: And there's a lot more to that. Uh, for example, you also find a precursor to the word I I know it's hard to say that. But that shows up in love's labor's loss as well. Why does that show up there? Well, you can see that there's a precursor to that word, honorificabilitudini, in there. The only thing missing is the totemus ending to that. Now, that's not a word that Bacon himself coined. Honorificabilitudin, a actually had been around for a few centuries. But Bacon does make use of it. He was very fascinated by it. And sure enough, he writes that on the outside of uh, the Northumberland manuscript. Later on, in 1597, it shows, in, I mean, 1598, rather, when it goes to publication, uh, the word honorific shows up in Love's Labor's Loss, Act 5, Scene 1. Uh, something else interesting happens just after that shows up. And that is, the, uh, there's a the clown is saying that, that word. But then he goes on, Moth then answers, and he says, Moth says, what is A-B, the letters A-B spelt backwards with a horn on its head? It's a little riddle he's giving. Why is that there? What does the A, B stand for? Well, the A, B actually stands for Anthony Bacon. But when you reverse it, you have B, A. And B, A actually was uh, an abbreviation that Bacon used in signing his name, and he often did. You sign B, A like that for Bacon. But when you you try to answer the riddle, Moss riddle here, what is A, B spelled backwards with the horn on his head? The answer to that is, It's a pun, and and Shakespeare loved puns. The author of Shakespeare, Bacon, just loved puns. And what it was, it's a pun called, it goes Bacornu. That's A-B spelled backwards with a horn on his head. But that's a pun on the name Bacon, Bacornu. Why is that there? Who else would put it there other than Bacon? Again, Shakespeare of Stratford wouldn't put that there. There's no reason to. Edward de Vere wouldn't put that there. Same with honorificabilitude and That's a 27-letter word. Notice that that word will break down into a in very interesting anagram, and I'll tell you what that anagram is. Let me look in my notes here, so I get it exactly right as it was, as it shows up. Actually, that stands for in Latin is Hiludi f baconis nati Tuiti orbi, that's the exact anagram that you get on that. You can make other anagrams out of that. You certainly can do that. But this is clearly the one that Bacon would would be drawn to, the one that he would single out to as an anagram to be made out of that particular word. And so he does that. There's another reason why Bacon is, likes using this word. Now what, is, what does that term mean in Latin? What it means is in Latin it literally means these plays F. Bacon's children are preserved for the world. That's literally what it means. There, like I said, there's another reason why he chooses that particular word. He's drawn to it. Again, it consists of 27 letters. When you, when you Bacon used ciphers we've been mentioning. Uh, he used what's called the Elizabethan simple cipher, the K cipher, the reverse cipher, and also the uh, simple cipher. But he used another one, that is the Pythagorean cipher. And the Pythagorean cipher, the word honorific abilitude in autobus adds up to the number 137. Now in later years, and centuries later, that would become a very important number in quantum mechanics, in, in quantum physics, okay? Every quantum physicist knows the meaning of the number 137. It has to do with what's called the Compton length, which has to do with uh, the shell of a, an electron around a nucleus of an atom. Now, during Bacon's time, he couldn't have known about that. However, what Bacon did know about that number was that it was the 33rd prime. That he did know. That was another reason for him choosing that word in that form, honorificabilitudinitatibus, in that precise spelling. It gives you the 33rd prime. Okay? So Bacon's very well aware of that. There are other places where you see Bacon using coded messages. Uh, throughout the works one of the things that shows up in addition to everything else is that all throughout the shakespearean works you also find a lot of allusions to masonic ritual there are things literally out of masonic ritual in many of the plays and again who else is going to put them there bacon was the founder of modern speculative freemasonry Uh, his good pens his his the people who were assisting him in writing uh, the works in the Shakespearean Circle and the Shakespearean Enterprise, which he basically ran as a, as a, sort of like a, a corporation, with him as the chief executive officer. Uh, Bacon is making use of uh, people writing for him. He's making use of ciphers. They're making use of ciphers, and throughout the works, he makes he shows they show up. At, at some point, these people in his Shakespeare Circle, become the first speculative Freemasons uh, under Bacon. Bacon's the first uh, Grand Master of speculative Freemasonry. He's the first worshipful master of his lodge. But later on, these other people in his circle uh, also become likewise. You, you find something very interesting when you look at the headpiece, of Ben Johnson's headpiece of his poem in the 15, uh, 1623 uh, folio. Uh, above his poem, there's a headpiece that consists of, again, you pretty much have to be a Mason to know that, I am, that's why I did notice it, the headpiece consists of an, a row of Mason squares, and not just any Mason square, but as it shows, shows up as the insignia of a worshipful master in a Masonic lodge, and it's a whole string of them, and what they they form, the letters M, v, uh, uh M.W. twice over. And M.W. stands for Worshipful Master. Or W.M. rather. W.M.W.M. But they're made up of a string of uh, of Mason squares. And that of course is insignia for the Worshipful Master. So it's clear that at some point Ben Johnson himself got involved in Freemasonry. How does the word Freemason come in? Actually, before Bacon, the word Freemason wasn't in use. The word Mason was in use, but not Freemason. The reason why Freemason comes in use after Bacon's time is that free also is in both the simple cipher and the K cipher. It adds up to 33 in the simple cipher, which is also uh, adds up to the name Bacon. And the K cipher it adds up to 111, which also is Bacon in the K cipher. So you got in both ways. You have Bacon 33 in the simple cipher, Bacon in the K cipher 111. But free does the same thing. And sure enough, in the the final word of the play, The Tempest, it ends with the word free, and does that as a sign off as a as Bacon's signature. Okay. Again, Bacon does something else sim- very similar. Uh, Early in the early in the uh, in the 15th uh, in the 1590s, after the initial Shakespearean work is published, and that was uh, anonymous work published by Shakespeare. Uh, that was published in 1592. It was called his first work was called uh, Venus and Adonis. It was actually a, considered to be a pornographic piece at that time. And Later on, within a year of that of its publication, two very two contemporaries of Bacon's, uh, by the name of Joseph Hall and and uh, John Marston, uh, were writers and satirists at that time. And they often would make commentaries of other authors' work, especially new authors, and so they make commentaries about uh, about that first poem, and. Uh, they're, being, they're trying to be satirical about it. Marston actually takes Bacon's side and it appears that they actually know who the author is. marston at, at one point, although they don't specifically come out and say who it is, they, they go along with the business about it being anonymous. But at one point, Marston writes to Hall and he makes mention of Bacon's uh, motto off of his uh Family tree off of his family tree and out of his, off of his uh, coat of arms, which is Mediocria firma. So in Letter to Hall, he's alluding to Mediocria firma, identifying the author as such. But that's re really to Bacon. There's something else they're doing. They both make allusions to, they, they allude to a character by the name of Lebeo. Actually, Lebeo originally was uh, a Roman... Uh, lawyer and uh, jurist and he would occasionally uh, uh, criticize the Roman emperor, which was not a very good thing to do, but he did and that's one of the reasons why Bacon admired Lebeo. But Hall and Marson then you adopt that term to identify the author as Shakespeare. They call him Lebeo. Now again, when you go to the cipher tables, I think you're going to show these, aren't you?
0: Mm, yeah, I have them When
1: you look at all the cipher tables, interestingly enough, all six of the cipher tables work with a Lebeo and show Lebeo and Bacon to be inter, uh, interchangeable names. So in, for example, in the simple cipher, again, Lebeo adds up, just like Bacon does, to 33. In the K cipher, it adds up to 111, just like Bacon does. In the Reverse cipher uh, is adds, adds up to ninety two, and again, you again you have it in the Pythagorean cipher; they both add up to seventeen. In the simple cipher, they both add up to fifteen. So all five ciphers, both the name Lebeo and Bacon, are interchangeable. Who else is going to do that? You can see where Marston and Hall are coming from. They actually know who the they know the real identity of the actual author, but they keep it a secret and they use a coded name to identify him.
0: This is all incredible stuff. I, we, we have to stop it here, but I really recommend that everyone read this book, The Lost Secret of William Shakespeare. It's on um, Richard Allen Wagner's website, thetruthaboutshakespeare.com. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, he even goes to other big things we didn't get into, which I think are really important. Number one, that Bacon was heavily involved with the writing of the King James Bible. Uh, and the, the most embarrassing fart joke of all time happens to one Devere, um, and I'm gonna let you read the book and find out what happens. But I always love to end on a fart joke. So Richard Alan Wagner, thank you so much for being here. This has been illuminating.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, to
0: say the least. Uh, and again, I'm gonna have all this stuff up on the website. So please check it out. Check out these pictures. Follow along. I know it's a little dense, but you know when you when you follow along with the pictures, it all makes perfect sense. It's it's pretty incredible. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great night.